This episode celebrates the achievements of two women who have had decades of experience in the film industry, as well as one who's breaking new ground. Here's costume designer Sandy Powell. It would be like, oh, well, she has to have something low cut or she has to have a lot of legs showing or she has to have not many clothes on to make her sexy. I will always say no to that. I also talked to prop buyer Judy Ducker and to film critic and author Hannah Flint in today's Girls on Film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith. And this Saturday, the 18th of February 2023, I'm co-hosting the 12th British Film Designers Guild Production Design Awards with Ali Plum. At that ceremony, the Lifetime Achievement Award will be going to Judy Ducker. On Sunday, I'll be attending the EE BAFTAs, where legendary costume designer Sandy Powell will be receiving the BAFTA Fellowship Award. We thought this would be a great chance to find out more about their roles. First up, BAFTA and Oscar winner Sandy Powell, OBE, who's worked on films including The Favourite, The Irishman, Carol, and most recently, Living. Well, Sandy Powell, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you very much. Well, Sandy, congratulations on the BAFTA Fellowship. It's amazing news and much deserved. Thank you. Thank you. How did you feel when you found out this was happening? Oh, goodness. Um, sort of a bit shocked, actually. I mean, you know, it's a weird, you have all these feelings. I mean, one is, is flattered and surprised and then shocked and then terrified. And then, you know, all of those things. You say, oh, my goodness, what does that mean I've got to do? I've got to get up and say something really meaningful. It also means, and then, then it makes you think, oh, my goodness. I must be really old. You know, this is a lifetime achievement. They only give this to, to people who are sort of in their twilight years and then put out to pasture. But I had to get over that bit, really. No, it, it was great. I mean, obviously, it's um, it's a huge honour and I'm extremely flattered. And even more so, really, I think, to be the first designer. Yeah, that feels like a, a massive step. Um, I guess you must feel proud on behalf of all your community that, that you know, your work is being recognised. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, one of the first things I did do when, when um, I was told about this was I looked up all the past recipients and that made me feel even more nervous, you know, because it starts with like <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock and goes through, you know, people like Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith. I mean, just, you know, Martin Scorsese. Um, and then I, then I counted up how many there were in each category and, you know, 30 something directors 20 something actors and loads of producers and there are actually in the technicals if you if you like there were two cinematographers two editors one composer that's it wow. in 52 years wow in 52 years so i realized that it was a quite a big deal um that for a costume designer to get this it is a big deal and not before time i must say when you meet people that don't know you what you do, which is probably not very many, but if you, they say, what does a costume designer do? You know, how do you des- describe that to the lay person? It's not what people think. People think, I think people imagine I'm in some lovely atelier somewhere drawing pictures of lovely costumes, which I then hand over and they get made and put onto actors and they walk onto the screen. There's an element of that, element of truth in that. My job is to run a department of people and between us, we provide all of the costumes that you see in a film. In terms of the designing, the actual creative, creative moments, those those are sort of not few and far between, but that's almost the smallest element of the job. The biggest part of the job is about communication and admin, actually, getting things done, which involves, you know, beginning with, you know, your meetings with the director, having read the script and we talk about the characters and the job of a costume designer is to help the audience completely believe in those characters through what they're wearing. And you do it incredibly well. We're going to list all your films in our notes because we don't have time to even go through them all here. But when you look <laughs> back on your career, 
I mean, I'm sure you're going to be giving a fabulous speech on Sunday to this effect, but when, specifically from our perspective, when you look back on your career, are there any films you've worked on that you found especially interesting in terms of gender or female characters and how did the costumes play a part in that? I think, I mean, there was a time back in the early 90s where it seemed like there was a little theme going through. I, I did, in the space of a couple of years, I did The Crying Game, which had the female character played by a male actor. And then we had Orlando, which was Tilda playing male and female. There can be no doubt about his sex, despite the feminine appearance that every young man of the time aspires to. Do not fade, Orlando. I cannot think of a life without you. I see. You're here as a casualty of love. To me, you were and always will be, whether male or female, the pink, the pearl, and the perfection of your sex. And then what followed that? And then I did um, Shakespeare in Love, but it felt like there was a real theme. And I think at the time, I kind of took it for granted. And looking back on that, I realised how lucky I was to have had such interesting characters and films to have worked on. Are there any specific moments on any of those films that, that leap out in your memory, that any particular challenges or things that you overcame that you were proud of? Oh, my goodness, there's challenges on every film, really. In fact, that's what the job entails. Mostly you're solving problems and overcoming obstacles because however prepared you think you are, however you think it's all set up and ready to go, strangely, there's problems just fall, you know, fall in front of you, hurdles fall in front of you the whole time and you, you're constantly sort of thinking on your feet and working out how to solve problems. So there probably have been countless challenges that we've had to overcome and it's really, really difficult to, to list them or think of them. I mean, I wish I was one of those people who kept a diary. You know, I'm so envious of those people who sort of religiously daily keep a diary and they can go back and, and pick a year. But you're obviously too busy to keep a diary, right? You were just running around. <laughs> and the only thing I have got is um, I have got albums of photographs from pre-digital. And I remember there was one summer where I had nothing better to do for some reason. I took three weeks and I got all of my boxes of photographs and I put them all into albums by year. Now they are really useful to me because if I want to, if I'm doing something in the 80s, I'll go and think, oh, 83, and I pull out my 1983. And that's the best reference of what, and that's how I can remember what I was doing in those times or what film I was working on. I would love to leaf through that. That sounds amazing. I wish I did the same with the written word. I wish I could, you know, have all of my thoughts as I'm doing a job. And it's true. I tried to do it once on Gangs of New York. I tried to keep a diary because that was completely mad. It was completely hectic. It was unbelievably difficult at the time. And so I started writing a diary and then there just wasn't time any longer. Can you give us a little bit more about picture of how you work with your team, especially, I mean, you mentioned Gans in New York. I mean, a huge film, tons of extras, hundreds of people on screen. How does it all come together? I'm the first person to be employed. And then, then very quickly after that, I, I have my number one assistant and my supervisor. And they're the two most crucial people that work closely with me. Then they have people assisting them and working for them. So it's sort of like there are tiers, really. You know, I have first assistant, then second and third assistants on something on a big scale that is and then the supervisor and the supervisor has coordinators and assistant supervisors working for them and it just sort of filters through then beyond that we've then got the, the creatives the, the people in the workrooms and I might have one two or three workroom with cutters and then with stitchers seamstresses tailors and basically my job on a daily basis is you're just touring around all of these different departments all of these different people sort of talking to them about what you want and then sort of making progress on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm always on my feet on a job. There's never time to sit down. You must be really fit. <laughs> because, I mean, sometimes you walk for miles. And sometimes, I mean, depending on, on where you are, on Gangs of New York, we were all at Chinichita Studios. And the costume department was one end of the studios or one part of the where I, I was making the principles at one end of the, of the studios. But at the other end was a massive, massive space that was the size of an aircraft hangar, which is where all the extras were being kept, were being made. And all the costumes as they were being made were sort of hanging up on rails on for miles and miles and miles as far as I could see. And then all the fittings were done there. So I was constantly walking miles on a daily basis from one department to the other. And then the dye room, which was another major, major part of that job particularly, and, and every job I do, there is always a dye room. 
which is set up where all of the fabrics are dyed or printed. And all of the costumes, once they're made, then go back into the dyer and to be worked on to be aged, as it were. And whether it's aging them to make them look like a thousand years old or a hundred years old or, or just like a week old or like they've been slept in the night before. It's a, it's a whole process of stages that each costume has to go through. And I have to physically follow, follow each costume through every stage. What is the best compliment someone could give you about the costume design on a film you've worked on? It depends on the kind of film. Now, sometimes the best compliment is, believe it or not, if people haven't noticed the costumes. Because they haven't noticed them, it means they've been swept away by the film. The film has been, and the characters have been believable to them. Therefore, the costumes haven't been a distraction, but they've obviously been completely accurate or completely appropriate for that film. Of course, it's nice to be told when someone says, oh, that costume or that that frock was gorgeous. Yes, I mean, if it's meant to be gorgeous, that's a great compliment, but sometimes it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like quite a lot of craft industry, actually. If you don't notice it, then they've done their job, right? As a costume designer, do you think there are sort of pitfalls you can fall into if you're not careful, kind of costume cliches, um, that, you know, kind of stereotypes of the characters or anything like that? I suppose there are, but then... I think one is always striving to do things in a different way as opposed to fall back on that's the way it's always done. You know, there are cliche characters, aren't there? There's like the, the I don't know, the sexy woman. I mean, you know, yeah. there's always a bloody sexy woman. And in the in the old days, I'm saying, because I think it's a little bit different now, but I've always fought against it. It would be like, oh, well, she has to have something low cut or she has to have a lot of legs showing or she has to have not many clothes on to make her sexy. And my argument always, I will always say no to that unless there is an actual reason in the script for that you know item of clothing I would say no that's not what sexy is sexy it comes from within sexy is the person so I personally would not fall into that stereotypical way of designing that kind of costume and it same goes for other things I mean but you do have to watch out you do have to watch out for for falling into traps but as I say I think most people really will want to try to be original I just want to go back to the sexy thing and thank you on behalf of probably everyone listening for that, because that seems like a very significant part of the machine that you are fighting against. And it seems yeah. like you say that you think it has moved on. Well, it's moved on. I think I think yeah. it's moved on only because people now, I mean, usually that request for sexy will come from more often than not the producers or production as opposed to the director, because I'd like to think the kind of directors I work for would not be asking for that. But sure, we hear it countless times that it's got to be sexier. And it's always referring to a woman. It's hardly ever. If a man, you know, if I've had to make a man sexier, it's usually about, you know, making him look tough is sexy for a man. But woman is like suddenly all her clothes have fallen off. You know, she doesn't have many clothes on. That makes her sexy. It's not. And I'm always in support. I'm, I'm always in support of the actors as well. You know, I'm, I'm trying to save an actress, you know, a female actor, sort of the humiliation of having to, you know, bear her soul. Well, it seems like along with intimacy, coaches, you know, you play a part in that and making the actress in particular feel comfortable, perhaps during an intimate scene as well. Of course, it's absolutely, it's absolutely crucial that you make your actors feel comfortable, whatever they're doing, especially in scenes like that. And especially with the younger actors when, and I've worked with quite a few um, younger actors where it's been their first or second job and they're, they're, they need a lot of guidance and they need to, they need to trust you. And they need to trust everybody around them. So I do make a point of trying to make them feel comfortable. As a woman working in the the craft side of the industry, have you seen things change in general, do you think, from that perspective? Yes, but it's still going on. What's still going on? Comments about people's bodies or shapes. I've heard those. I've heard comments made. I've nipped that in the bud and actually said, well, that is their shape. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to alter the clothes to disguise that shape. That is them. That's how they should be. I'm not being specific here, but I have had these conversations in recent years. I'm very pleased to hear that. I've noticed you've got Snow White coming up with Rachel Zegler and Gal Gadot. Yes. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to speak about that at all. I think a little bit. I think I can speak generally about it. I think obviously there's a lot of um, potential for fabulous and interesting costumes. And I wondered if you could give us some insight into your approach in terms of giving the story a fresh contemporary spin. It's not set in a contemporary period. It's set in, you know, one of those once upon a time periods, but sort of late Middle Ages, if you like, but doesn't really look like it looks like a contemporary take of late Middle Ages with a bit of 1930s thrown in from my point of view, because I kind of like to play homage to the original version, which was 1930s. That's all I can tell you about that. It's it's a musical. So there are big numbers. There are big 
impressive numbers with crowds of uh, da- you know all singing all dancing extras because I, I haven't seen it so I have no idea I mean I know what we did at the time we made every single costume and there are thousands we made every single thing you see on screen which was brilliant to have the opportunity to do that I do really enjoy that and getting a lifetime achievement award and, and sort of looking back on your career I mean you spoke a bit about how you feel to be honoured but how do you feel when you actually have the space this this sort of award gives you the moment to kind of look back on everything you've done clearly you love your job clearly your job is really hard but what kind of emotions do you feel I feel you know what sometimes I have to sometimes I have to look on IMDB to see what I've done because <laughs> I can't remember well that's an achievement in itself isn't it if you've done so much <laughs> I have and sometimes I do and I look at them and I think oh forgotten about that or sometimes you come across I'm like for instance last night at home my partner was just on YouTube and suddenly a bit of Rob Roy came up and I thought I've forgotten I'd done that and you know we, and we just sat and watched a scene and it's quite nice when things like that happen when you when you suddenly see a bit of something you've done and I re-watch it many years later having forgotten about it and it made me realize actually how lucky I am that I've had the opportunity to do so much and I've been able to do really great films you know I'm really proud of almost everything I've done I mean there have been some dodgy ones in there but I'm sort of really grateful that I had such great opportunities and I'm sure we've got some people listening who would like to follow in your footsteps or maybe young costume designers themselves what would be the first few pieces of advice you'd give them oh the advice um yeah I mean when I started out I mean, on one hand, I would say, be careful of what you do, be choosy. But but then on the other hand, I'll contradict that and say that when you're starting out, just say yes to anything because it's experience. That was the advice I got from a tutor at art school before I dropped out. Yeah, you just say yes to any job you're offered because you're going to learn from it. At the very beginning, when you don't know what you're doing, really, anything you're offered, you're going to gain experience from. And I would say, do that and not be too fussy about it and don't expect too much and just use every opportunity as a, as a learning a learning curve. Anything else to add for the girls on film listeners who are just, you know, enthusiastic feminist film fans? Enthusiastic? Well, anything to add to? Oh, I don't know. Just keep enjoying what you're doing. I mean, again, I'm going to say I'm incredibly lucky to have had this opportunity to have a sort of lifetime, and it is a lifetime, I guess, of work that I've really liked really loved and I still do and that's the only thing I hope it doesn't mean that that like I said time to go out to pasture I hope I've got a bit, at least another half a lifetime left oh for sure I can't see you ever stopping you're prolific <laughs> and I'm I'll telling stop. you what I can't... You know when I'll stop I'll stop <laughs> okay. when I, I'm not interested in the projects if the kind of things I want to do dry up now there is an element of that happening already there's certain budget films that aren't happening anymore um things are changing and shifting well I mean in the 80s and 90s a lot of the films I did were a certain budget a sort of mid-range budget like all those period films I mean mostly they were period films they're few and far between now I mean what's happening now in terms of film I think the period opportunities now come with the streaming and, and and the episodic things for tv and less so in film and the films are more there's the huge budget things which are either action or franchises or the more interesting um, risk-taking projects are much, much, much lower budget, like really low budget, which are great for the people starting out. And it's a bit harder for the established people who want to do something in the middle. There's not so many of that mid-range budget. Would you put a film like The Favourite in that category, for example? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so as you say, risk-taking and edgy, and that's, yeah, well, that's like exciting the, work to do, Like I guess. in the 90s when I did a lot of films with Neil Jordan, all those sort mm. of films, like End of the Affair, you know, The Butcher Boy, uh, Crying Game even. I mean, those that, that sort of scale film. There's not so many of those. Well, I hope that you keep working and working because we absolutely love seeing your work on screen. And Thank it's you. such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you're wearing on, uh, on oh, Sunday as well. Oh, goodness, the pressure. I know, that's the second thing everybody says to me. Is I'm like, sure yeah, it is. Congratulations, how does it feel? What are you wearing? That's why I thought I'd say it last. I didn't want to be too much of a cliche. I'm not going to ask, but I will look, my eyes will be on you. But I'm sure you will look fabulous and I can't wait to hear your speech. And congrats again. Super well Thank you well very done. much. It's been lovely yeah, talking to you. Have a great night. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks, Andy. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Sandy Powell. My next guest is Judy Ducker, who's receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from British Film Designers Guild. 
the highest award they can bestow. It honours members who've had a long and extensive career and who've made their creative mark on the industry. Judy, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have you on the show and congratulations on your award. Very exciting. <gasps> it certainly is. I was absolutely stunned. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, so how did you feel when you got the call? Oh, I'm overwhelmed. I, I thought they've got the wrong person. <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. It's just, it's a wonderful thing to have, you know, and especially as it's one's peers and people within the industry. I think that makes such a difference. Definitely. Oh, how wonderful after working so hard for all these years. Um, I'd love for the listeners to know a little bit more about you. So if okay. you could um, tell them exactly what your job involves, really, because I know, you know, a, a lot of people listening may not know exactly what it does involve. Well, for most of my career, I've been a production buyer, but in, in recent years, I've, I've changed to being a set decorator. Um, so the production buyer's job is basically to work alongside either the set decorator or the designer, depending on whether they have a set decorator. Um, you're responsible for um, the budget, uh, which is uh, the least interesting, but the most challenging <laughs> um, and probably the most important. And um, we go around the, the hire companies choosing all the props for a set and out to places like antique fairs or wherever we need to go, depending on whether you're doing a modern production or a period production. Um, and the job is basically to put life into the set. Um, and the, the difference between the set decorator is they will actually put all the props in the right places uh, when they've all been chosen. They will come out with the with the buyer as well and uh, go around selecting the props. Uh, we, we're incredibly lucky in this country because we have probably the best hire companies in the world. Really? I mean, they're, wow. they're amazing places. I mean, they're like an Aladdin's cave of props. And uh, I suppose the most the most um spectacular one is Farley's, which is like going into a museum. It's full of the most wonderful antique props, which you can hire for films. I mean, they've got things like Roman heads, original Roman heads. Um, they've got a, a Neolithic pot. They've got um, uh, some ancient chairs, which come from the 16th century. So, and most of their stuff is real, although some of it has been copied. So we have, we have this facility. We also have a company called Superhire, who's got um, several warehouses full of modern furniture. They have a section called Modern Props, which is all the really upmarket stuff. And then um, they have a huge warehouse, which is full of the more ordinary things if you're doing a council house or, you know, any sort of house. Um, so you will go around there. And uh, there are several other wonderful high companies for, for antique props, old times and eccentric trading. And uh, Farley's has several sections, one of which is Spiller's, uh, where you select paintings and they have the most amazing range of paintings of every sort you can think of. And uh, Mark Farley told me a lovely story that um, they bought Spillers and incorporated it into the Farley group. And there was one painting which went out in the style of Van Dyke. And they actually found out it was it was an original Van Dyke. Oh my goodness! <laughs> how did they find that out? How did it occur? I'm, I'm not sure how they found it out, but I think it probably accounts for the wonderful things they've got at Farley's. Oh, I so want to go there. Can I just like be your intern one day and just follow you around? <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> it sounds amazing. I've been to hire companies all over the world, and there's nowhere that even remotely compares with the hire companies we've got. And um, they have some good companies in France, in Paris, but again, you know, not on the same scale. So we are incredibly lucky. So how did you get into this game? Was it something that felt very natural to you? Not at all, no. Um, I was born and brought up in Newcastle under Lyme in North Staffordshire. And a girlfriend and I decided to come and live in London. I was sent to the BBC as a temporary secretary. And I thought, gosh, this is where I want to be. And so I, I worked as a secretary. Then I worked as a, a PA, um, calling the shots in the galleries, you know, sort of on you two, coming to you next and calling in the videotape and things. And I worked on a, a sort of chat show where I met some amazing people and was given the job of taking Sean Connery to the bar for a drink. Oh, how did that go? One of my more memorable occasions. <laughs> <laughs> was he a gentleman? He was indeed. Glad he to hear that. Indeed. The BBC at this time had the most amazing system, which was the, called the attachment scheme. And what it meant was that um, you could leave your job and go for six months to any other job within the BBC and see if you liked it. While I was working on Late Night Lineup, which was the chat show I did, 
we did a film following a designer around, going around the hire companies and things. And I thought, well, I don't think I could be the designer, but that other job, now that's nice. So when I saw that they wanted people to go on attachment to the prop buying department, I applied to go. And um, I was there for three months before a job came up. So I applied for it and got it. And I've been doing it ever since, really. Isn't that wonderful? That just chance moment where you discovered this profession you didn't really know existed. I know. Amazing. How wonderful. Yeah. Well, it's so lucky, really, because, you know, you could I could have gone my whole life and never even known there was such a job. And were there many women doing that job at that point? Um, there were a few. The, the very first was there. She was a wonderful lady called Betty Hodgson. And Betty was a real character. She she used to go to wherever she was going and she would leave her car wherever she got to. And we actually saw it on a roundabout once and she never seemed to get caught. I mean, she just stopped and got out. She didn't care where she was. She would stop and get out. So she was quite a character. But um, yes, the, the, there are quite a, I mean, there, I suppose it's one of the departments that has more um, representation from women than almost any other, apart from sort of makeup or things like that. Yeah. And um, some great friends. No, it's 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 lovely. It's lovely being in the art department. It really is. It's uh, th- there's less um, representation for women in the actual design department where they're doing building the sets and dro- and doing the drafting. Um, although that is getting better. I mean, I think sadly that a lot of the industry is dominated by white male. Yes, which, which yes. I think is getting better. Yeah, you must um, have seen a lot of changes in your time. Can you tell me in what way yeah. you feel it's getting better? Is that across all the different kind of craft sides? Well, I think, yes, I think that more people, I mean, the thing is, you can't suddenly say there aren't enough women, let's have a woman cameraman, because they've got to learn the job. You know, it would be totally unfair to put people into something where they've not had the training. Um, but in my whole career, I only work, worked once with a female cameraman, a camera person, but there are more. I notice more assistant camera, you know, p- people in the camera department now. There seem to be more people in the sound department. And so I think gradually it's building up and hopefully they will be the next generation. And there are more, I think there are more um, directors now, female directors coming through as well. Certainly when I started my career, it was very rare to work with a female director. What female directors have you worked with in your career recently? I know you actually worked with Liv Ullman on, on Miss Julie. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Liv was wonderful. Mm. No, she's, she's a lovely lady. And that was that was um, great fun to do. We filmed in Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. And we had uh, Jessica Chastain and Colin Farrell and Samantha Morton. And Colin Farrell um, had arrived with his minder. And his minder's job was to stop him drinking. <laughs> And the minder was a huge American guy who was incredibly funny. And um, Colin Farrell was wonderful. I mean, he was just, uh, he and Jessica were fantastic. And it was really good fun. And Liv was wonderful. And she said to me one day, I I had to provide a musical box. And I'd got a very pretty musical box. And she looked at it and she said, would you mind awfully if you use this one instead and I said, well, no, no, that's fine. If she was, only it was given to me by Ingmar. Oh, my goodness. Which was Ingmar Bergman, of course. Mm-hmm. So I thought, no, I have no objection to using <laughs> a musical box given to you by Ingmar Bergman. But, uh, yes, it's quite extraordinary when you, you, know, you, you work with someone like that and think back to, you know, what they have done in the past. What kind of um, other unusual requests have you had from directors or producers? Um, well, I, I did a film in France and um, we, were, we were filming and they called, OK, cut now. And the director said to me, oh, uh, Judy, I want the harbour full of blue boats for tomorrow morning, please. No, no, there's just blue. OK, good night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I went to see the harbour master with my interpreter and discovered that we were in Brittany, that he didn't speak anything but Breton. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. Uh, but he had his granddaughter with him, and luckily she spoke French. Anyway, in the end, we managed to persuade him to send all the boats that weren't blue to the next bay when the fishing boat came in the next morning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yes. And, of course, the director arrived, and he's so good. You know, and that's, <laughs> all, that's totally all the thanks you get, yes. is it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Took it totally for granted, yes, that that would be the case. But, uh, weather is the other problem. I did um, the very first series of it. BBC comedy called To the Manor Born. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, we arrived on set the first morning and it had snowed. There was snow everywhere. And the director said, well, we can shoot um, Audrey's um, husband's funeral, which was Penelope Keith's husband. And, but uh, the butler, Brabinger, and her dog weren't there and they were needed for one scene. So he said, well, we'll get them back tomorrow. And of course, the next day, snow's gone completely. So I was sent off to find 20 square feet of snow, which was down in, uh, down in Devon. So I went everywhere. I, was, I went to the council to see what they could get to help. I went to do it, do self shops. And eventually I went into a shop that sold animals, food and dogs beds and all this. And the lady said, well, she unzipped a dog's bed and it was full of polystyrene granules. And she said, well, these are made just down the road. And I went down and this lady had bags and bags of polystyrene granules. Now, rush back to location with all these and we put them down. Luckily, it didn't. It wasn't windy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good job. And we did our 24 square feet of snow. And I was quite early in my career and I was so proud of myself. And I went back and I got all this. And they said, oh, good. Uh, now, while you're away, there was something else we wanted. And nobody was even remotely impressed. Oh. <laughs> It was a learning curve. I soon realised that the only problem is when you don't provide what they want, not when you do. <laughs> so getting an award like this must feel extra special. It's like a big thank you for all those times oh. no one really appreciated you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it is. It, it is really wonderful. Yes. I mean, I, I've worked with some amazing people, you know, and I mean, I've been to 12 different countries, you know, I mean, to have found a job like that. It's just incredibly lucky. I think. Are there any you look back on particularly fondly and you're especially proud of what you and the and the art team achieved? Well, funnily enough, they are repeating a BBC drama I did called Fortunes of War. And it's been repeated at the moment on BBC Four. And it starred two little known actors named Kenneth Branner and Emma Thompson. It smells of horse. Well, that's part of the charm. That horse looks too thin to have a smell. <laughs> Whereas the driver. <laughs> ah, I it. And we filmed in the former Yugoslavia, as it was then, and we filmed in Greece, and we filmed in Egypt. And it was on one of those occasions where one went to wonderful places with lovely people, and the film was really good. So it had all the things, you know, it was a joy to do, it was a joy to watch, and it was just exciting to go to all these amazing places. I mean, there have been others. Uh, I've uh, I did um, Christopher Robin much more recently. Oh yes, that was great. And that was that was great fun. That mm. was great fun. That was a lovely thing to do. If people are watching Christopher Robin, for example, um, are there any little moments or any little scenes that they can look out for? That there's a story you can tell us behind. You know, the um, the interesting thing with Christopher Robin was, of course, you were working with things that weren't there. Basically, you know, we had little moquettes of. Um, Pooh and Piglet and Heel and that thing. And we did have the problem of having to do, I mean, it was quite an interesting way of shooting because we dressed a full-size set, but they reduced it technically. But we did have to do Owl's House and we had to do that tiny. So it was finding all the things. Um, and we found, I seem to remember, we found a little stove that was for a shepherd's hut, which was the right size for what we wanted. So we did Owl's House all to scale with the pup, well, with the owl as he was going to be put in later, but it was it was quite interesting working in a where you didn't have the actual performers as it were. Yeah, I was going to say uh, earlier actually has um, the advent of visual effects, or well, certainly the, the increases in technology, has that made your job easier or harder? I think in some ways it's a bit harder. I mean, I did the Golden Compass, and we had um, the bear, the main bear, which was enormous. Um, and of course, you had to keep remembering. You know, at one point we had to do all the all the um, thrones for the bears, and everyone. We had a, a giant white polystyrene bear, so that everyone would remember that this bear was going to be huge. <laughs> and so, of course, we had to think in terms of any furniture we had to get made because it had to be to scale. It had to be really big, and it was quite difficult for the little girl who was playing Lyra because she had to work out her eye line because she had to be looking up at the bear and, and aware of just how big it was the whole time. So, it, and you know, it can be more of a challenge to, to work when you don't actually have what you're working to, you know. Going back to your award, um, in terms of the British Film Designers Guild, um, how does it feel to be part of a body like that? Is it really important, do you think, in terms of sort of 
connection and camaraderie and support? Oh, I think so. Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, it's a fantastic organisation. And I mean, it's, it's a huge help. It does some amazing sort of um, things where they help to train people. And also, um, they, you know, put people out who are looking for jobs. And they let people know when work is coming, that sort of thing, which is so important when you're new in the industry. And you don't really know people, you know, because that's always the challenge when people start in the industry is getting your first job, you know. And then because once you've got your first job, you've met all those people and they go off all over the place and they may well say, oh, well, why don't you use so and so? They were really good, you know, and then they're off. But it's it's that chance of getting in that's the, the real challenge. I mean, I was so lucky because having got into the BBC. I eventually went freelance um, in 1989. I had set up my own hire company and uh, the BBC thought it would, were very worried about it being conflict of interest. And so they said, well, we put it in your husband's name, which wasn't really a problem because he was named John. So we just put it in Jimmy Doko, <laughs> which made no difference. And so I left and went freelance. And, um, you know, when the, the business was up and running, I had people who sort of looked after it and then I would go and do films. So it was it was really, you know, I was I didn't have a problem getting in. It just worked that way. Any final words of advice to anyone who's trying to break through then? Well, just keep at it. Keep at it. Don't give in. Don't give in. It will happen. Make yourself indispensable. Be nice to everyone. It's you know, it's important that you're you are liked because that's why people will employ you. If there are two people and one's stroppy and one's nice. It doesn't matter. We all know the nice one will get the job. <laughs> Sounds a lot like freelance journalism as well. I know yeah, exactly what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks so much for your time. I've certainly really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you, Judy. And congratulations Thank again. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Thank Girls you. I'm film. looking forward to the weekend. Me too. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Judy Ducker. My final guest is Hannah Flint, a film critic and Girls on Film regular who's written a book based on her own life and her journey in film so far. Please be aware that our conversation touches on topics including eating disorders, sexual consent and racism. Well, Hannah, welcome back to Girls on Film. Oh, it's great to be back. <laughs> We're very happy to have you and congratulations on your book, Strong Female Character. Thank you. I mean, it feels like the perfect place to talk about it, so I'm very excited. <laughs> well, yeah, the, it, your book touches on so many things that we discuss on the podcast all the time. Obviously, you're one of our regular guests, but I was thrilled to read it and see you talk about many things that we feel really passionately about, you know, like representation on screen and off screen and people writing about film and everything from, you know, sex on screen to periods on screen. Tell the listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet um, how it came about and how you would describe it as a concept. I tell you what, I'll say it. My editor, they described it as a, a movie memoir manifesto. And I think that's like the perfect way to encapsulate it all. It started off a, a few years ago now. You know, I've always had this urge to kind of look at cinema beyond just a review but also what's the cultural kind of ramifications of what we see on screen and a friend of mine Nikesh Shukla who is an author he said to me one day have you ever thought about writing a book and I was like oh maybe uh, and then this is kind of we kind of workshop a few ideas and um and strong female character came out of it as a way to kind of you know so much about um, myself and my love of cinema, you know, come and how I navigate the world as a woman is influenced by what I watch on screen, you know, for better and worse. It's kind of created these stereotypes and tropes. But the problem is, you know, on this podcast is when it's told by a specific set of group for a very long time, that image is distorted. So what I kind of want to do is the memoir aspect is look at anecdotes from my life, myself as a woman, a woman of colour, someone who's mixed. I'm half Tunisian, so I'm North African and Arab and English. And kind of look at the way that has informed the way I see myself, how I would navigate the world, whether it's in the way I see myself as a person of colour, the way I see things about my body, you know, whether it's my hair or the way my body looks as well as things about um, my personal life, especially when it comes to Arab representation, how that might have influenced the more internalized racism and Arabophobia I might have developed when I was younger and certainly have kind of like disentangled in my brain as I've grown older and seen actually, seen through some of the harmful stereotypes that especially Western cinema perpetuates about the Arab world. So, so yeah, and I thought, you know, rather than it just being a simple kind of essay form, I think sometimes, you know, making it more relatable and putting myself into it, hopefully, Hopefully, 
has helped readers kind of feel more open and understanding and feel more relate relate to the situation going on, even though we are all different. Um, obviously, being a very specific person myself, everyone's unique, but there's a lot of things that are quite universal. So yeah, I was hoping that readers might feel a little bit seen, if it, even if it's not specifically the exact same parameters of their life. Well, yeah, I want to thank you for your honesty because, you know, it is very personal. Um, but it, in that, I found it very powerful um, because so often, as you suggest, film books are very factual. And um, the fact that you're coming from this from a very personal perspective, very analytical perspective, I feel that there's something feminist in that in itself because as a female film critic, you know, I was always in the early days of my career, I felt like I was being slightly discouraged from writing from a personal perspective and it had to be, you know, very authoritative and fact-based. But I feel like increasingly there's a bit of a change now, perhaps in, in some of the other work that we do, that it's okay to bring your own experience into it because that's valid, right? Yeah, and also we don't watch films in a vacuum. Everything we see on screen, we bring to it in our way of watching things is informed by the way we've lived life or, you know, everything from our life. That's why we have such an emotional connection to cinema. Uh, and that's why I describe myself in a book as kind of an emphatic critic because so much is about what does it make me feel? And, you know, you can leave a cinema feeling happy, sad. Uh, I just saw, you know, I'm speaking to you after I saw Marcel the Shell with shoes on and I just feel totally destroyed and it made me think about my grandmother who died during lockdown and made me feel about connection and family and I just felt so overwhelmed with emotion and that's a positive but there can also be like other side of it where you can feel so angry at the displays of representation of femininity where or you know even femininity as a concept what does that even mean so increasingly we need to be able to open up that kind of understanding and critical analysis that it's not scientific sometimes it's quite emotional I think that's the beauty of having a broader range of views and the way we discuss cinema that it's not just this set principle like you can only do it in this very specific way and I think that's what I tried to do with the book certainly academic aspects of the book where I wanted to kind of have thinkers you know whether they're you know philosophers like lecturers like actual <laughs> academics but then also just like real people talking you know whether it's filmmakers talking about the films or other critics talking about the films so and also me talking about me <laughs> tell me you mentioned obviously it, girls on film and the book are very much aligned so I rather than me pick out any particular chapters because unfortunately we haven't got time to go through them all <laughs> but is there any particular chapter you want to talk about and you want to flag to our listeners to say look I think this could really engage you, really interest you. It's interesting because I feel like there's a few. And I suppose, you know, you mentioned this, I talk about sex. And I think that's what, and interesting, my mum obviously is a past uh, guest on the, on the podcast. And there's a yes. big chapter on motherhood. Um, and it was really great for us to talk about little women and that representation. I thought that was really fun. Um, but one of the things she was concerned about, you know, in the whole book where I talk about things, she was like, Hannah, do you, are you sure you want to talk about your sex life that much? And, you know, for me, that was just the easiest thing to talk about because I feel like if we expect, especially when it comes to like positive or not even positive, more just naturalized, normalized representation of female pleasure and sex. And, you know, I can't expect to female film or filmmakers or any filmmakers to kind of um, show it more honestly or if I'm not willing as a writer, as an author, to also share in that as well because, you know, a lot of stuff that we see on screen is kind of inspired by real life. So I felt like, I felt the best way we can normalize it is talk about it. And there's a segment in a book, a section called Adult Material, where I talk about masturbation, I talk about porn and I talk about periods as well and period sex in part as part of that. Um, and so that was, I think that was a, a interesting for me to also look at. Cause again, it's like such a taboo subject and it feel, and I feel like it shouldn't be a taboo. Actually we have a better conversations about it. We might be able to demand more or even just ask for more. Cause isn't that whole thing about sex? It's communication and getting that kind of getting on the same wavelength as someone to have the best experience or even getting on the same wavelength as yourself and that solo experience. Another one I, I really felt, and it, and I wrote it in, in a day actually, was a chapter on um, my eating disorder and eating disorders and the way that's presented on screen. I have still have bulimia because I don't think you ever kind of get rid of it. It's kind of you're always in recovery. And for me, it was a really cathartic experience writing about that. You know, it's interesting. I, I On social media, I don't really talk about 
too personal stuff on Twitter. But in this, I felt I had the space to really get into it. And also, you know, especially as a millennial, and actually, you know, whether you're kind of older or younger than that, you know, we've all seen it on, on in magazines and the culture of diets. And, you know, I talk about when I first developed my eating disorder, and even at a time when Beyonce was in Dreamgirls, and she was talking about the cayenne pepper diet. And, you know, even stuff that we watched, like, Bridget Jones, like, how is she so bizarre to me that she's considered at all, like, fat? You know, that that line where Lara from the New York office, like, I thought she said she was thin. And it's like, oh, no, she's not, like, thin. What does it make me? Um, and I think it was, in for me, it was really important to kind of look at that and look at how actually the way we present eating disorders is so specifically about kind of anorexia and, like, skinny white women predominantly, you know, because there's a thing, you know, what does bulimia even look like? It looks different to so many people because actually it can manifest in so many forms. Interestingly, you know, we've seen the whale come out recently. And again, you know, bulimia is not just a female-specific issue, eating disorder. But things I didn't enjoy about the whale, I really appreciate the way it looked at disordered eating. So for me, that was quite important to kind of show that in my book and talk about and really felt good for me to be able to share it and show how actually we're hopefully getting a little bit better or we can maybe strive to get better in the way we present that sort of illness um, and that mental health issue. Thank you for sharing that. Um, um, last question about your book. Um, the name, of course, Strong Female Character is something that we talk about on the podcast and debate, you know, the name the given to a female character. And it is that a bit of a cliche? And um, why did you decide to call the book that? Originally, I wanted to call it The Pictures versus Hannah Flint as a play on The People versus Larry Flint. Ah. <laughs> the but my uh, editor was like, that's too niche. And I was like, OK, but I kind of like it. But then as I was writing it, it made sense, really, because I also did like a BBC Inside Cinema like video on strong female character and looking at it as that being a trope that's taken on a literal interpretation of strong but I realized that if I consider myself a strong female character what I what I think it actually means is strength it comes from your vulnerabilities and I think in writing characters it's a strength of writing it's acknowledging that actually it's not a monolith you know, strong female character doesn't just have to be about action starts or physically beating someone up, you know, as much as I love that kind of, you know, I love superhero films, you know, I love Michelle Yeoh, like, she's like one of my favourites and all the films that she's done, you know, we need to kind of reclaim that strong female character label away from the kind of negativity and the kind of um, reductive way it's been used, especially... A lot of male filmmakers use that now. Okay, oh, she's a strong female character. It's like, okay, define that. But I think we all have our own definitions. But like for me, a strong female character is a female character who is more than just like a two-dimensional reading where actually she's allowed to be hysterical well as with all of us and I think it is about relatability isn't it often when we're looking at characters on screen and indeed in your book I think your honesty uh, has made it very relatable and entertaining and powerful thank you tell people where they can find your book you can find uh, my book at most bookstores maybe online is a bit better like at uh, Waterstones um, at bookshop.org there's a lot of like independent booksellers you can also get the ebook um, and also, if you like my dulcet tones, uh, I did the audiobook. So you can get that from Audible. And it's available, I think, in the UK, just came out in the US and Canada. Brilliant, brilliant. And before you go, there is something else we want to talk about. And it is involving spoilers. So uh, listeners, if you haven't seen Don't Worry Darling yet, and um, you don't want it spoiled, then uh, please switch off now. We'll come back later. Um, but Hannah, obviously, you're um, um, a voter in our awards, our Girls on Film Awards. And um, we have the category uh, Best Female Orgasm Sponsored by Intimacy on Set. Um, and um, interestingly, and I agree controversially, um, <laughs> one of the nominees this year is um, Florence Pugh with Harry Styles in Don't Worry Darling. Funny, it was coincidence. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. There are only so many different stories that we're told. We're told what we remember until we try to remember things that they want us to forget. Like Margaret. Alice. No. Jack. It's okay. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. Frank is doing something to us. We uh, have a you know a shortlist of critics who vote for the nominees. Um, this one came up a couple of times, so we included it in the nominees. But I, I was expecting someone to comment on that, and that person was you, Hannah, or the first person. So would you like to explain why you feel this is controversial, and it can be as spoilery as you like? Well, I, I suppose because of the parameters of 
the the award it's you know it says that it is responsible and authentic and i think uh in the the world of don't worry darling that is irresponsible uh and not authentic because it's taking place within a, a, a simulation right she is being kept by her incel boyfriend in a stasis, she has no idea that she's there and she's been forced to live in this kind of Stepford Wife universe, computer simulation, where she can't possibly give consent because she doesn't even know that she's part of it. So for me, that doesn't technically fall through the parameters of it. And it's been interesting because I feel like that was a big thing they talked about. Interesting that, you know, Olivia Wilde talked about like, oh, only women have orgasms in this. And then I think Florence Pugh said that she just didn't like that's the only thing that's been talked about. And I think when you look at the film as a whole, you know, it's definitely produced a bit, a lot of conversation about feminist cinema. Personally, I, I feel like if the final act was the beginning of the second act, that would have been a far more interesting way to kind of delve into this and really get into a feminist fight back against this situation. But yeah, for me, that doesn't qualify as a as the best female orgasm. Can I tell, can I say who I voted for though? Can I just yeah, shout sure. out to one? I really, like, I really like True Things, right. which is Ruth Wilson. Yes. And I thought that was really great. If that was a really I good one. I agree. That is a good one. I think um, if it's not really too much, you were the only person that actually picked that one out. But um, it would definitely be on my long list. And I was remembering yeah. another good one was uh, The Happening as well that, that never yes. made it through. But that would have been really good. It's, it has been a pretty yeah. good year for orgasms. So it's interesting that um, that this one uh, pops up. I know what you're saying. I was talking to Ellie in our in our team earlier and we were saying, well, you, you don't actually know who is writing the narrative of this world because they're lying next to each other. And who is actually driving is it pre-written it's there's a lot to, that we don't know about you're right in a way if much as I actually did like don't worry darling if we'd have been told more about how that world worked mm. we'd have been in a better position to judge the level of consent I suppose my guess is the people that voted for it were taking it completely in isolation as a sex scene and at the time you're watching it you're thinking oh great you know the woman's pleasure is front and center here and the scene also is is trying to lure you into thinking he's a good guy at that point. Mm. But I think, you know, you have to consider the entire context. You don't just review one part of a movie. This isn't just like posting a clip on Twitter and saying, oh yeah, I think take into account that whole thing. And I do think Florence Pugh's character, she has no <laughs> idea what's going on. No. I think it makes it pretty clear. But, you know, I, it's interesting. Maybe it makes, you know, certain things that you watch and you might have one idea about something and then you have a discussion about it and you're like, oh, well. And so maybe there's a few people who might have changed their votes. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll get voted for Don't Worry Darling too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to hear from the listeners um, if you want to join the conversation about that because it is a, is a really interesting hot topic. So thank you. Thank you, Hannah, for bringing it up. And thank you so much for coming on to talk about strong female character. Best of luck with the book. I hope lots of our listeners go out and buy it and enjoy it. And we'd love to hear their thoughts on that too. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you. That was Hannah Flint. Today, I've been speaking to Sandy Powell, Judy Ducker and Hannah Flint. The Fellowship will be presented to Sandy Powell at the EE BAFTA Film Awards on the 19th of February 2023, airing on BBC One and iPlayer from 7 to 9pm. The Girls on Film Awards takes place at the Garden Cinema on February the 23rd and you can listen to the ceremony on this podcast soon after that, so make sure that you've subscribed. If you'd like to support Girls on Film, please consider signing up to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. You can help by just pledging the price of a coffee once a month. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio editor Cam Griffith and intern Eleanor Hardy. Many thanks to our partners for this episode, our principal partners, Vanessa Smith and Peter Brewer. I've been Anna Smith. Speak to you soon. Boys and their toys. At least we know they're getting work done.